0: Welcome to a very special social distancing season of Consumed, the podcast about life and flavor across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm Jamie Lewis. Every quarter, I publish 10 conversations I've had with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, but this season is a little different for obvious reasons. To keep things healthy and safe, I'm conducting interviews via Zoom. Thanks for bearing with me in this new, uncharted territory. Before we get started, I have to tell you about a recent conversation I had with my friend, James Onaveros. He's the farmer and owner of Ranchos de Onaveros and Native Nine Wines in the Santa Maria Valley, and I interviewed him in my first season. Anyway, we were talking about COVID and how much it's affecting everything in the hospitality industry, and then I said, yeah, I question whether or not I should even bother doing another season of Consumed right now, given how scary and difficult everything is. James stopped me right there and said, no, Jamie, we need these conversations now more than ever. James is a born storyteller, so I get why he thinks stories matter. But when he said he wanted to sponsor the next season of Consumed, I knew he really meant it. We need stories about our experiences, how we fell in love with food or wine or brewing or baking, and we need it right now, when so many of us have to put our passions on the back burner just to survive. So, I'm letting James and Ranchos de Anaveros help me, and I fully intend to help him. Find his exquisite Pinot Noir and Chardonnay wines at ranchosdeaniveros.com. And check out his new restaurant, The Station in Los Alamos, where you can get takeout on the weekends. Find The Station at thestationlosalamos.com And as always, Consumed is sponsored by the awesome people at Slow Life magazine. In preparing for their first post-coronavirus issue, I've been so impressed by how resilient they are and how focused they are on the local community. I cover food for Slow Life, so it's been tricky finding a good way to write about restaurants without stressing them out. But the Slow Life editor suggested I write about farm boxes and CSAs, which is a brilliant idea while those services are going bananas with growth. The point is Slow Life is a source of community and calm right now when we're all separated and anxiety is running maybe a little high. Look for a copy in your mailbox every other month. And if you're not already in the know, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Today I spoke with Max Montgomery, the owner of the new brewery There Does Not Exist in San Luis Obispo, California. Max is a slow native, so his perspective on living here is grounded between what it once was and what it could be. He started brewing at home, but befriended Matt Brindelson, the head brewer for Firestone Walker Brewing Company in Paso Robles and Buellton. Soon, Max was attending brewing school in Chicago and Germany, tasting and brewing and learning his way through the history of the world's beer. When he returned to Slow, he brewed at Firestone Walker until he decided to start his own thing. There Does Not Exist is a tricky name for a company, a fact that Max is fully aware of. The logo is cryptic, the beer labels are cryptic, and the brewery tasting room doesn't even have a sign. What's more, the brewery is located in a very low-traffic part of town in a warehouse area off Suburban Road behind Food for Less in San Luis Obispo. But it turns out these are just the conditions for a cult classic to grow. And by all evidence, that's exactly what's happening. Listen to me and Max talk about skateboarding, anti-marketing that keeps him awake at night, warm sourdough bread, and the challenges of making a popular IPA. Here's Max Montgomery. I'm new to this Zoom thing, so bear with me. I think you're doing great. You showed up right on time. It's, I was a little behind because my son has been using this computer for school and he had some kind of crazy virtual background on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was just looking at that actually. I was like, oh, I can change my background. Can I put myself in a beer?
0: (laughs) I bet you could. Yeah. How are you, Max?
1: Uh, I'm good. How are you?
0: good good yeah it's gorgeous out today
1: yeah I had to do a little beer delivery in hismo and then uh, I rushed back so I can hop on here nice I give myself lot, enough time to figure it out
0: yeah good job yeah. um well I actually just met you yesterday I went over to the tasting room and it was so fun to meet you and to see that space and so I I didn't get to Thank talk you. too much to you but tell me tell me where you grew up
1: grew up here in San Luis Obispo. Really? Down, uh, Mil, yeah, on Mill Street, right downtown.
0: You lived on Mill Street?
1: I did, yeah. Right by Mission School, like half a block away. Oh, I didn't go to Mission School.
0: Right downtown? Yeah. Right on. Do you have parents yeah, who I, still live there?
1: Uh, they, they now live in uh, Avila Beach. Okay.
0: Cool. Yeah. Did you go to Slow yeah. High? I did, yeah. What was San Luis Obispo like? In, well, I'm, I'm not even going to guess at the decade. I'll let you decide if you want to share what that decade
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> it'll take me a second, but I think I, I graduated high school in uh, 2003 or 4. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah I, think four, well, I think 4, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm 34.
0: Okay. Think, yeah. <laughs> so Perfect. what was it like, I mean, in slow, so that must have been, you were a 90s kid.
1: Uh, I was, I was, I was born in 85, Yeah. but yeah, growing up, like, you know, all 90s through the, obviously like early 2000s in local school districts here. Yeah. It was cool. It was mellow. I mean, uh, you know, we live right downtown, so it was cool. I would say one of the coolest parts about growing up there was like being able, like downtown was sort of like, uh. Bigger version of my backyard, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like a pretty small backyard at our house, so it was uh, from pretty early on. My parents would let me like ride my skateboard or bike downtown and just kind of hang around down there and I you know cruise. So farmers markets are always really fun. You know, from probably when I was like twelve on, I could just walk down there and like buy some fruit or something. Yeah, <laughs> so, awesome. but it was cool. You know, I never like obviously then I didn't think about it, but now that I'm older. I, like, really appreciate that growing up and, like, being kind of downtown and, I don't know, getting to experience that then and then now also.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned skateboarding. Was that something you did a lot of?
1: Yeah, that was my big hobby when I was a kid, skateboarding. I kind of lived at the slow skate park Mm -hmm. uh, when it was, like, the worst skate park in the state. Now it's the coolest one.
0: Yeah, it's gorgeous now.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I'm like, dude... I was a kid like I just want to like rewind so I can like experience that we had like terrible wooden ramps on the roller hockey rink it was pretty pathetic
0: (laughs) I remember that vaguely
1: yeah yeah Uh, it was fun at the time but
0: yeah did you um, did you go to Cal Poly
1: I did but I uh, I did not finish at Cal Poly yeah because it was very unapplied after 12 years of going to school I just I I was done, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. My
1: dad went to Cal Poly, so I kind of, and my grandpa actually went to Cal Poly, so I kind of felt obligated in a way, and then I went, and I was a um, construction management major, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, after, like, the first quarter, I guess, or trimester, I can't remember what it was, but it just, like, was obvious that I was wasting you know, my parents were helping me out so I was like wasting their money and I didn't feel very good about it and I didn't love going anyways so I just decided to take some time off Yeah, um, and that was cool you know yeah. and I I got really into like video production mm. you know like I was kind of grew up like filming my friends skateboarding and stuff and I first thought it was really fun and any any possibility to cop out and do a video on a school project I took full advantage because it was way easier than writing anything yeah. for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I actually got into a career in that uh, before I got, way before I got into brewing.
0: Really? Yeah. What kind of career? I mean, did you just freelance and, and shoot, or did you do weddings, that kind of thing?
1: Um, I, I did kind of freelance stuff. I would do anything, you know, anything anybody wanted, and then I, uh, oh, my light's turning off.
0: I know, it looks like a party.
1: Yeah, it's like the motion-sensitive lights, you know, in the warehouse, so they, like, go on and off. <laughs> um So I kind of did freelance stuff, and then I got linked up through a mutual friend with uh, uh, Taylor Congdon. I don't know if you know him. I do.
0: Well, Jenna's been on this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: No, right. That's funny. <laughs> no, crazy. So I got, through a mutual friend, I got linked up with Taylor, and I worked with Taylor for three or four years making videos and things like that. Yeah. And... Uh, then and that's I, motocross, right? Yeah, that's what we were doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. and I—I I actually wasn't that into motocross. I thought it was really cool, but I—I ne- I didn't like grow up riding motorcycles or anything like that. Yeah. So it was—it uh, was sort of new, you know. But it was fun. Yeah, I, I liked it, and it got me exposed to like I was kind of hoping to use that as a segue into skateboarding or snowboarding or something that was a little more my speed Mm -hmm. um but then i ended up really enjoying it and i really enjoyed working with taylor yeah i don't
0: know
1: it was fun it was a really fun time in my life i guess
0: yeah Yeah. how did what when did you have your first beer
1: uh let's see sometime in high school um
0: you remember what it was red stripe no
1: I don't know. No, it was probably something terrible, like a coors lighter, yeah. Like that. Um, but then, actually, pretty early on, that was it was probably like my sophomore or junior year in high school, yeah. And then, pretty early on, my little group of friends that we had got turned on to. Uh, like we didn't know it as craft beer at the time, but just something that was like. We just thought it was better because it was more expensive, which it probably was. Right. Um, But we were naive to that at the time. Um, So we started drinking, um, like, Sierra Nevada a lot. Mm -hmm. And I still drink Sierra Nevada. I still really enjoy Sierra Nevada. Mm -hmm. And then a really funny story was that we used to drink uh, CBA.
0: Of course you did.
1: Yeah, which was ironic because then I started to work at Firestone much later in life. I was like, yeah, I was drinking this beer before I could even drink. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's
0: a good beer. I remember,
1: yeah, I remember David Walker thought that was kind of a kick. He's like, oh man, that's awesome. Don't tell anybody I said that, but that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: And then, did you after you were working with Taylor, did you keep doing the video stuff?
1: Um. Yes. So I I had a little bit of a gap in there where I got into land surveying. Hmm. Really? Um, and I, yeah. And I actually, I thought that was, I loved that. I thought that was going to be like, I thought it was the best career on the planet because you're outside. Um, you're, depending on the job, like, you're either, you know, we had, we got to see a lot of stuff that people don't get to see. Yeah. So we were like way out in the hills staking corners for new property that was yet to be developed. So it was just a really cool, I don't know, it was like one of those, got to be outside, never had to be in front of a computer, like, That was all the stuff I was trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I realized that, and I kind of knew this, but I guess it just wasn't on my mind that I get poison oak like terribly.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So I was, we had to do this job staking property corners and it was like in a mountain of poison oak. Uh, And we had to do it for like three and a half months straight. So I had like the worst. I had like, Full body coverage of Poison Oak for an entire summer.
0: What does that do to a a person's person's system?
1: You you actually kind of like get just used to it, I guess.
0: Wow. I
1: mean, it was like still uncomfortable, but it went from like I couldn't sleep and then I just had it so often that I was like, just, uh, I didn't even kind of notice. It was just always there.
0: That's horrible. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't fun. So I was like, pretty quickly after that, I'm like, dude, I, I love this, but I just can't do this anymore. Or, you know. yeah. So, I, um, I got back into the video thing after that. Um, and I started working at um, Sports Warehouse locally. Yeah. So it was like Tennis Warehouse and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just sort of spearheading um, videos for their e commerce sites and YouTube and, and video blogs and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, it was a pretty cool ground floor opportunity to get in there. And it was local. And that generally, that work was hard to find locally
0: yeah i feel like um those warehouse the tennis warehouse um there's even like a roller hockey warehouse isn't there there's so many of them around here um is that
1: my car i don't know i don't think so
0: (laughs) that's hilarious and we can edit also don't worry Oh, so yeah, all, right. it, all I was going to say is I feel like around here in Slo, uh, uh it seems like everybody is like two degrees away from somebody who's worked at one of those because they're such big employers.
1: Yeah, and it was a rad place to work. I mean, it's like, it's a cool young company, like, I don't know, it was just a cool vibe, you know, at the time. And like I said, that work was generally kind of difficult to find hmm. uh, locally. So I was like, I felt pretty happy to have that job even. And then I started meeting the people that worked there and, and, you know, I think Drew, the owner, he's probably in his 40s. So it was like, it just had a different vibe than a lot of the other places I had worked. Hmm. Um, so I worked there for like seven or eight years doing that.
0: And were you, uh, was the building down where you are now? Is it that suburban road? Spot?
1: Yeah, yeah, right, right next door.
0: I wondered because, I mean, I it's been a real—I'm jumping ahead—but the fact that you chose the spot you did for the brewery, it's a very yeah. conscious decision. It would, it has to be.
1: Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, yeah, a very conscious decision. It was sort of forced in this direction because, um, you know, difficult to, to kind of show without being here, but it's impossible to do something like this. In downtown just because of the amount of real estate it takes up mm-hmm. so you know you're forced sort of out of that uh, downtown core into the more industrial areas and come to find out that the you know industrial there's a big deficiency in available warehouse space hmm. like it you know it's kind of like housing actually but I don't think it gets as much attention as housing
0: no definitely um, not I had no idea
1: yeah, like if you need a big warehouse space, it's really difficult to find. And the people that do have them hold on to them forever because they're so hard to find. Yeah. So, you know, we looked high and low to try and find a spot uh, and considered a lot of other options. And then we kind of honed in on, on these buildings. Um, and they were actually, we leased it when the building wasn't even finished in construction. So the the, the building was being constructed and there was a release sign up, uh, up front and we We made a deal, and then we had to wait it out until construction was finished.
0: I remember it took a really long time for that building to be finished.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it took even longer for the brewery to be finished.
0: Yeah. terrible. (laughs) Has it been a good decision to be down there? Are you happy in the spot you found?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, knock on wood that we can ride it out long enough. We're going to be positioned for pretty good success here, uh, mainly because of... Um, you know, we pretty much have what we need. We don't, we could use a little more storage space, but we uh, went big, so to speak, and, and kind of leased the whole building, which was sort of a stretch, I felt like at the time. But breweries are hogs of space. So pretty quickly, what felt like, you know, we were riding our skateboards around in here, like, oh, there's so much room. And now there's like, I don't even know where to put my phone down. Yeah,
0: kind of right, right.
1: Um, and then also the proximity to,
0: For sure for sure and as, it's
1: like go
0: ahead i was just thinking as things spread also i mean st- stuff like breweries need they need a place and so they end up on the outskirts and those places i mean i i read in an interview that you did um i think with the tribune you said something like it it is reminiscent of the funk zone in santa barbara where you know you get pushed out and then those places end up being really cool and um you get good neighbors and it becomes its own yeah. thing
1: For sure, yeah, we're, um, uh, teamed up is probably the wrong word, but, um, you know, our neighbor, Stephen Ross Sellers, right up the road, Um, we communicate a lot about just really trying to drive that that funk zone feel in this area, because San Luis doesn't really have anything like that, Mm -mm. so we've we've sort of coined it the slow beverage district, (laughs) Um, and we're actually pushing to try and, like, get it actually designated as that within the city. Uh, It's more so, Stephen Ross is really the push behind that, but I'm, you know, we're along for the ride and anything they need from us, we're here to help. Um, And Devlet uh,
0: also, is he, is he part of that?
1: Uh, Yeah, 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 we're on board. So, you know, occasionally we get a little group email going back and forth about how we can do it and we're, um, Paula over at Stephen Ross is really pushing to get like, um, I don't know what they call them, but like the kind of banners, like they have on Garden Street downtown, you know? yeah. And so, just to let people know when you're coming to this area, and also drive new businesses to, to look for space out here. Yeah,
0: you know, it only takes it only takes one. It it. I think about Los Alamos and the fact that um, Full of Life Flatbread was really the first to take a chance on Los Alamos, and it just oh yeah. You know it it gained something there, and look at it now. It's amazing. It just takes the right person. and and maybe a couple people to draw that sort of business. And like I told you yesterday, I would love it if that happened because my husband works right next door to you and it'd be so cool (laughs) if we could just walk over and get a beer sometimes.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're right. It really just takes a few people committed to the idea and then it also takes cooperation from the municipality to, to go along with it. But I, you know, Maybe people have different opinions, but I think that it would be foolish for them not to support the idea because I think it only it it makes what you know I don't know it makes kind of a you know generally I guess warehouse districts aren't like really a um, they're, the city doesn't want to be proud of them they're just a necessity of the surrounding uh, like workforce you know like big places need them some breweries and wineries and maybe a little kind of a uh, niche restaurant thing like it can make what is otherwise kind of an ugly thing pretty cool
0: yeah totally and a destination and there's parking you know i mean that that everybody yeah. should be happy about that
1: yeah i mean i've lived here my whole life and uh, you know i love downtown but i just don't go that much because it can be kind of a pain you know sometimes i'm in the mood and then other times i'm like uh just go somewhere where it's quick and easy and not have to hassle yeah. Another. another
0: yeah, for sure. Well, so um, still way ahead of what I wanted to ask you, but I'm curious because of the area down there. You have also made a conscious decision not to put up a sign at the brewery. What what's that about?
1: Um, we didn't have money for a sign. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, honestly, that's kind of how it happened. But um, and this is going to sort of get into a different topic but the whole idea the whole idea with the brand was which come to find out was really difficult it was like wouldn't it be cool if the brand was mysterious and almost asked more questions than it answered and come to find out that was really hard to do and you know like it or love it or hate it i guess we landed on this there does not exist thing which is bizarre and i admit that Um, but i also think that it has a lot of relevance in different ways to different people um and we uh going back to the sign thing we opened up and we didn't have a sign and i was kind of conscious about it or you know i'm like "Ah, i don't know we gotta get a sign but we couldn't figure out how we could do a sign that was on brand really and we were thinking about that and then so many people came in and were like oh i love it you don't have a sign it's like a speakeasy or something and i was like oh i guess we can go a little longer without a sign
0: yeah right
1: and then it just kind of made sense and i I'm a, a big fan of subtle branding. Um, I, I didn't want it to be like, we are a brewery, like a lost egg. It's signed. It was like, if you know, you know, and we wanted it to grow kind of more organically, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, and, and through word of mouth and things like that.
0: Yeah. So you don't have any, um, in terms of marketing, you don't have any kind of outreach. Uh, you don't have a marketing budget per se.
1: Zero. We have spent zero dollars. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. Uh, I,
1: I would, I think that, uh, any business person would tell you that's a terrible idea. Um,
0: I don't know. I think about... It
1: seems to work out okay for us.
0: Yeah. And there's brands like, you know, in the wine industry, there's Cinequanon, which is based out of Ventura, I think, which is not a typical wine spot. And the guy, um, Manfred Crankle, the winemaker, is... I'm, his stuff is so non-discoverable. It's yeah. super cryptic. The labels are like, what is happening? And they reference like medieval and mythology. And just, it's like, it's almost like it's set up for people not to like it and they love it. And it's a cult line. And so, but he, I mean, I, I wonder how conscious he was of doing that. Did he just design something because he loved it or did he do it to, you know kind of engender mystery and all of that and he's very sure. anti-marketing just like you guys
1: yeah yeah it was uh i lost a lot of sleep over there does not exist mm-hmm. like the name and the brand and everything and it, eventually i think for better or worse it just was like who cares you know yeah. like if we could if we were hoping uh you know i'm not wearing one but our logo is a backwards e with a slash. And we kept referencing, like, oh, best case scenario, we turn into, like, the print thing. Like, we want to be known as the logo and not have anyone even know what the name was. Yeah. Um, but whether that'll happen or not, we'll see. But that was kind of the way we approached it. Like, you know what, let's just get the beer out there and, like, not worry really what people think about us. Yeah. And hope, hope that they like what we're doing.
0: I'll be honest. I was really, I was like, what is this name? What is happening But I'll tell you, Max, then I drank your beer and all of a sudden it did not matter. I I really will say that Um, I was I was on board. And I guess that just goes to show that marketing can only do so much. And, and, you know, a logo, a name, whatever. It's just a tiny piece of the puzzle. And if you can get someone interested enough or even like mad enough at the fact that you named it, there does not exist to try the beer. I mean, If they're real beer drinkers, they're going to appreciate what you're doing.
1: Yeah, we had, uh, when the Tribune ran that article about us, I foolishly read the comments, and there was a, a lot of people that didn't get it, and there was a lot of, like, really negative stuff that was said. And not negative, but it was just like, sounds cool, I'm sure the name will be the downfall of the brand, that kind of thing. No. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh this isn't working very well. But then I was like, you know what,
0: welcome. Um, yeah. Well, and you and the name, do I understand correctly, the name is really about the fact that I mean it's like there is no there there. It's about not a local brand so much as something that's kind of universal anybody could enjoy it. It's not it's not Firestone, which is fiercely local.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was for us. I mean, we are without a doubt a local beer brand and our local market is Our primary and only concern at this time, but it was very important to me to develop a brand that, you know, would make sense in small town, San Luis Obispo. And then if we popped up a a satellite tasting room in Seoul, Korea, it would also make sense there and have mystery there also.
0: That's a very apt way to describe that, for sure. Well, so you did come from Firestone, though. How did you wind up there? And, and was Firestone your first brewing gig?
1: It, yes. It was my first uh, actual production brewing gig. I brewed a lot at home. That's how I got into the hobby at that time. Hmm. Um, and then I got really, really into brewing at home. Um, and just kind of by happenstance, the brewmaster Matt at Firestone moved into the house next door to me mm. and I, I I knew immediately who he was he had no idea who I was um, and we kind of just were neighborly and then we kind of became friends and uh, we became pretty close friends and uh, over an evening and some beers I think I confided in him that I I thought I wanted to try and make a career out of making beer um, and he was extremely supportive and I, I think I can quote him as saying uh if I can do it, anybody can do it. Which could not be any uh, any farther from the truth. Yeah. That he is like a, a savant and a genius, um, and I'm really happy to consider him a friend of mine. But it was very encouraging at the time. So I went to brewing school. I left my job, went to a brewing school, and then um, that was about a three and a half month program, a little more.
0: And I didn't then know I came there back. were. I had no idea there were brewing schools. Where was that?
1: Uh, it was half in Chicago. Um, And then they teamed up with an international uh, brewing school that's really old in Germany. So I went to Chicago for about two months and I was in Germany at the German Brewing School out of Munich for uh, about a month and a half after that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of, it was a leap of faith kind of thing, but it was pretty fun. You know, it was, it, it was an experience all its own to be, in a place like Munich and Germany, which is, I would say, I would argue that I think the it's ground zero for the way that commercial beer production is done today. It was invented there, and then you're there with fifty other really like-minded people um, as Americans in a foreign land going to brewing school. It was it was pretty rad.
0: Yeah, I bet the relationships yeah. with the other people in the school were valuable
1: oh yeah yeah it was something that because I didn't spend much time in at Cal Poly at college like I really realized I started to realize like oh the saying like it's all who you know or who you meet and you make these like personal connections that lead to greater stuff down the line yeah um, and you know I can think of off the top of my head like I think four classmates that I don't want to say that I got them the job, but they're, they've gone through the Firestone program and work there too. And it was like, you know, we'd be looking for somebody and I'm like, Oh, well, I know a great guy. I don't know if he's working somewhere now, but I'll give him a ring. And then right. they wanted to move out here. So they moved to San Luis Obispo and worked there. And some of them moved on. Some of them are still there.
0: Yeah. So, that is cool. And it is it's cool. personal. It's not it, life and work doesn't happen. Broad brush. It's, yeah, it's when it's sure. easy.
1: Yeah. It was a, uh, it was cool. And then after I got back to school, you know, it was sort of, I think, um, the brewing school gave Matt an excuse to want to hire me without just looking like he was hiring a bro kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of like could walk the walk and talk the talk, I guess, also with him kind of having me as a, or being a personal reference. Hmm. Um, and I started working there and then from, it was my first brewing gig. So I kind of like learned the Firestone way, which I still feel feel pretty strongly is the gold standard uh, of American craft brewing. In my opinion, I think it's probably one of the greatest breweries of all time.
0: What is the Firestone Way? Like if you had to define it, what is that?
1: Uh, The Firestone Way, I think it starts with quality above everything else. You know, I mean, I think a struggle for them was they were a a growing and and are really a Big hyper growth brand that's really popular because it's a really good product. and I think that um, a lot of times in that situation, sometimes quality will go to the wayside because of that. It's, it's hard. I mean, not. I don't think it's intended. A lot of times, it's just hard. It's really, really difficult to maintain high quality and grow. It's like a like the three legged stool thing. Like you can only have two. You know, which one are they going to be? Yeah. Think they just they handled that really well, and it was driven from the top down. Um, you know, quality was first, and then it was like we're not even going to go down this road unless we can make the absolute best product that everyone can be proud of. Okay. And it's not just the owners; it's like they You know, it was driven that like we want everyone to be proud of this brand. The guy on the bottle line, the guy racking the kegs, the guy in the brew house—like everyone should be proud of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool and also very um, formative for me.
0: For sure. I'm going to back up to brew school. When you were in Germany, did you ever have a, just almost like a divine spiritual moment with a beer where you were speechless?
1: Um, I, back then, yes, uh, because I was just exposed to a lot of stuff that I really hadn't. At the time, it was, it was kind of new, you know. Yeah. Uh, we we got to travel a little bit while we were over there, so we went to Belgium uh, we went to Austria. We kind of got around and tried the beers and went to these hyper-local little small breweries to try stuff, and then also got to try the kind of macro stuff from that area. Um, so it was, it was this sensory overload. But a couple times during those travels, there was like this aha, crazy moment. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and what I, I would say, the one that sticks out in my mind is like visiting Cantillon, the Lambic Brewery. Had the beer before and I always thought it was sort of the gold standard of that style, but then drinking it at the source is like it's crazy. Highly recommended.
0: Yeah, I'm taking that tip. That's on our bucket list for sure. Belgium is it's next. Whenever we're able it's to so travel. Good. It's again.
1: So, oh man. Yeah, exactly. We were actually supposed to go there um this month, I guess. We were gonna try and go. Oh. And it kinda yeah, it kinda got like put on the back burner for a couple of other reasons uh, besides the whole COVID-19 thing. But that was sort of like the nail in the coffin.
0: Yeah. Speaking of, I yeah. mean, do you have a team there? When you say we, are you talking about, who are you talking about when you say we?
1: Uh, the In reference to the Belgian trip, is was me and my wife. Okay. Uh, because uh, Matt is now with his family is now living in Belgium. They live in Antwerp. Yeah. So we were it was sort of an excuse that we did, you know, we haven't been on vacation for years because I've been building the brewery and we had, like, no ability to go anywhere. Um, So now that the brewery was kind of up and running and we were sort of worked out the kinks, it was like, okay, what a good excuse to, I can go do a little, you know, Skunk Works brewing stuff. We can see Matt and Allie and their kids and we can get a little traveling in and kind of one broad swipe take care of it all Mm. and then, we got, kind of got the wind taken out of that sail, I guess. Yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> we all have sails that are empty right now. I know, it's too bad. It'll It's coming, though. Did you... Yeah, um, yeah. When you decided to open your own place, I mean, how, how did that decision get made? What inspired you to start your own?
1: You know, I guess it was just... It really was... I was really happy working at Firestone, and I had no intention to leave because in my you know my thought was like I I somehow by luck I got to start at the top I, I was like already working at the best brewery so it was like where could I go from here and then you know I worked there for a little shy of six years I think and at some point I guess the desire like the the ember started to grow into a fire of like how could I like put my stamp on something um and I was sort of doing that. I mean, I felt that way. You know, when I was at a, a, a bar, a restaurant, and somebody would order Firestone beer, like there was great pride in that for me at the time. Mm-hmm. But I guess I wanted somehow to like make that mark bigger and, and make it more well known. So the only way to
0: do that was, I guess, my
1: own beauty.
0: Yeah. And is there a part of that too that you wanted to be, you know, creative in your own way? You wanted to, I get a lot of energy out of making something my own. Is that the same for you?
1: 100% yeah I mean people don't realize like production brewing uh, typically is I mean there's creativity when you make new products but usually that's Matt the brewmaster or the head brewer or, or you know the owners are kind of they're they're in a huddle doing that all together um, so the, the production guys like I where I was there's not a lot of creativity you know like your input is is appreciated but at the end of the day the decisions are made by someone else right. you're there to make the product was 805 you know we made a lot of 805 i probably made almost more 805 than anyone during my time there because it i mean nowadays maybe that's not true but at the time i was there during the heat of the 805 expansion you know, which is still going on today mm. um and that was in no way a creative thing right but it was fulfilling but not creative yes. not in that creative sense of the world yeah yeah
0: So what's the philosophy behind the beers that you're making? I mean, how is it different from, I I always would ask my clients when I was working in, um, wine and beer and spirits marketing, Mm -hmm. when we're trying to nail down their brand, the question always was, why must you exist? Why does the world need you? What, you know, why would anybody care? So i I, not to put you on the spot, but why does your brand need to exist?
1: That's a great question. And I, I, honestly, like.
0: That's a thinker. It's not fair to spring that on you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't. I, I don't really feel like we need to exist. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like we're here, and I think we're doing something that's pretty cool. And and in San Luis Obispo, it's pretty different. I guess. Yeah. You yeah. know, we 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 approach the brand from the beginning. This is another thing that I think any person that was experienced in business would tell you is a terrible idea. Um, but we, I guess I just sort of started looking at the industry as a whole and I realized like, I could see that, that all the popularity and and people were really driven by the small breweries and the creativity of these tiny breweries. Um, and a lot of these places were, it was just a different way of doing business, I guess. You know, big breweries are typically flagship driven. And you know they might make ten to twelve different brands throughout the year. There's some seasonal stuff that comes in and out, but mostly it's like you want a DBA. You can always get DBA. It's always there. It's a staple at the grocery store shelf. And I, I just, for some reason, had this inkling that the the industry was going to go in a different direction. So we decided, you know, let's what if a what if a brewery had no flagships and we never made the same beer twice and it was always different. And we decided to, to go in that direction because I felt pretty strongly that that would be cool, a cool concept for people to always have something new. Um, come to find out now that we've been doing a little while, theres I think there was a reason that no one did that. Uh, uh, it's difficult and I think it, it upsets a certain uh, sect of beer drinkers. You know, people want that. They find comfort in knowing that something's always available. Yeah. So when people come to our brewery and we're sold out, I think some people get to the stuff. Yeah. Uh, I hope that we can sort of open their mind and their horizon a little bit
0: and Yeah. It's funny when you say that it's it's one of those things like in theory I fully support that. That's almost like, you know, seasonal eating. You you don't get strawberries in January, you get them in spring and you just have to deal with that. And I in theory I love that. But in practice yeah. I want that lost light beer when I yeah. want it. I don't want you to um, yeah, have it come and go. Uh, but I'm sure we could all adjust as as consumers. We could all adjust. We have to with you. And then you get people to a point where they trust you and whatever you're putting out, they're going to try and be happy with. Some of it anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I want you to always have that beer. But we just ask that, you know, you, you, you take the ride with us and take the trip and like open your mind to, to try something different. You know what I mean? It, it it forces people to think outside the box. And some people are really receptive to that. And others hate it. Yeah, and I think it's just, it's, you know, it's a personality thing. I love it. I love trying new stuff. But when beer, food, wine, anything, like, if it's edible, I will try it without, with reckless abandon. Wow. Uh, just because I like, I don't know, I like new stuff, you know? Like, yeah. I, at the end of the day, I want to be like, yeah, I tried that. But I gave it a shot. I didn't love it, but I tried it. So hopefully people can kind of do the same with our beer. Yeah. hopefully they love them all.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, you do. You do hope that. With with that crew of believers, let's call it, or like, um, you know, they're devotees of what you do. Are you finding that crew is forming?
1: Yeah. I think that um, people appreciate that. I think it's taken a little bit of time for them to come around, you know, Um, but I think that we're getting that kind of devout following of people that are really anxious now to try. They're like asking when the new beers are coming out, what's, what's kind of on the docket. And we've got some cool stuff in the works, so I'm excited to get it out there. But I think that, you know, there's always going to be people that don't love it for sure. There's, there's some people that do love our beer, but come in, ask when, hey, when, when's this beer coming back? And I say, well, someday, but not for a while.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah I, is it working i don't know it seems to be working okay people kind of dig us i guess
0: from the outside <laughs> it looks like it's working for sure
1: yeah families is weird to me and i love it here and i would never live anywhere else if i can you know make that happen but it's a really uh, it's a hard market i think it, we would have been much more successful in a big city because there's mm-hmm. that it's kind of population based but there would be that many more people that would be interested in something different mm-hmm. um, so I, I think the, the, the long roundabout is says that I think it's working but it's uh, it's the slow climb
0: what's what's hard about San Luis to you
1: uh how long do we have almost
0: we oh, have <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't even get the
0: joke I was like oh well we have six minutes but yeah
1: yeah no it's uh it's um you know, I, I kind of look at it like, you know, in a small town, there's, I don't to say this, people, it's a small, it's like, it's that small town thing. People are very used to doing what they do. They don't think, there are some people that think way outside the box, and that's rad, but I think generally speaking, especially San Louis has sort of that kind of retirement y like vibe to it. Yeah. And those people are the least likely to want to branch out and do yeah. something. Because maybe they did that prior in their life. And they're like, okay, I'm ready for some normalcy now.
0: Do you uh, think that's going to change, though? I mean, as as people of our generation and, and younger are coming up, do you think that that might change?
1: A hundred percent, yeah, for sure. My dad tries all our beers now, and he only drank one the entire time that we were open for, like, the first three months. He only had one beer. Yeah, Dad. And, now he, like, every time we have a new beer, he comes in. He tries to buy it, but I give it to
0: him. But, yeah. That's awesome. What's one of the beers that you like the most that you have made, um, whether, you know, as a home brewer or now with the brand?
1: Um, I would say that I love, you know, I've been pretty fond of all the beers. I think the quality has been high, and that's kind of been the really encouraging thing to keep going down this road is that um, we, for whatever reason, I think some of was luck, but we, we hit our stride pretty good, pretty early on. Um, but the beer that just stands out right now in my head is the Kolsch, the Sowing the Sun, Kolsch. Mm. That that beer is pretty near and dear to me because I've drank it at the source in Cologne, Germany, and not a lot of people make them domestically. I think ours is pretty good. No, Not the to 2-minute horn, but I, I really like it. Um, and that... It's the one beer that has made me think. You know, maybe there is should be one or two things that stick around all the time and really change the way that I thought about our business. Hmm. Um, so that that one beer has turned into a staple that we've had since we the day we opened. We had it the first beer we made at the brewery, and it'll most likely stick around all the time.
0: That's amazing, and also the fact that it's not an IPA. Uh, yeah, talk yeah, to yeah. me. Talk to me a little bit about IPAs. I mean, what? How much of your production? goes there
1: um not a lot of our production goes to ipa on purpose Uh, i like ipa as much as the next guy but i think the market is really saturated with ipa yeah there seems to be an insatiable appetite for ipa much more into uh Kulsh. I'm much more into lager beer brewing I'm much more into uh beers finished with portanamite bottle conditioner with wild yeast wild uh, those are sort of like those are the things that keep me up at night thinking about um IPAs doesn't keep me up at night I like making them they do their job but I you know I'm passionate about other stuff
0: yeah same I, I- worked in a brewery for a while in New Zealand and they were, uh-huh. that was right at the kickoff with IPAs back in the States. And yeah. I drank my weight in pale ale and I coming back here, I really felt like I had kind of been there and done that and I'll drink a good one. I mean, I'm down with it, but I think yeah. the things that I crave are like a really good um, complex Czech Pilsner like give that to yeah. me, you know, or a, a really good. Um, my husband loves porters, and so getting into some of those that maybe used to be really popular but have been totally displaced by um, IPAs, Aps. It's I, I don't know. I'm really happy with those kinds of beers.
1: Yeah, and I yeah for sure. I I think that you know a lot of the the love for IPA was. In my opinion, driven by industrial lager, because IPA came along and it was arguably maybe the polar opposite of industrial lager beer brewing. So that's why people have gravitated towards it so much. Um, but again, I find a little more, uh, a little more love for the nuanced stuff, you know. And I hope that we can kind of push people to again get out of your comfort zone, try some stuff. We have IPA; we'll always have IPA. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, I, I hope that people can appreciate us for something more than that, I guess.
0: Yeah, right on. Let me ask you what I ask everybody. What is the meal that you would have if you had your choice before you die?
1: Ooh. Uh, I'm pretty easy when it comes to that.
0: Cheeseburger. I, like,
1: I, is it morbid that I think about that a lot?
0: You think about what you would eat before you die? Well,
1: yeah, like... Like, if I all oh, have something, I'm like, man, this is really good. Like, I could walk out here and get hit by a car. I probably wouldn't be too bomb. I don't order. think
0: it's morbid. I think it's yeah. gourmand. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I, I'm i easy. I like, like, for me, the ultimate meal would be, like, fresh sourdough bread, charcuterie, cheese, butter, uh, pate, mm. and then a really high carbonation bottle condition saison. Mm. that would be it. run me over with a train after that. I'm done. Yeah.
0: That, that sounds good. The problem with me is every time I talk to somebody about their deathbed meal, I think, Oh no, that's what mine is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't say anything else. I might change my mind.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Max, thank you so much for talking to me. I I loved being at the brewery oh, yesterday you, yeah. and I appreciate you learning zoom on my behalf.
1: Oh yeah. Thank you for uh, thinking of us. You know, I'm, I'm honored to be on here. There's, like I said, I hadn't really heard of it, and then when I looked on it, there was you know a laundry list of people that I highly respect. so I'm, I'm pretty honored to be a part of it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Consumed, as always. I'm so glad you joined me. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. If you want to get all kinds of tidbits like recipes, updates on guests, and new seasons, join the Consumed mailing list at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at J-A-I-M-E-C-L-E-W-I-S. Until next season, wear your mask, wash your hands, cook dinner, send letters to your loved ones, support your local purveyors, and make a budget for takeout. Every little bit helps. Take care, everyone.